Many of you know I've been out of town the last two Sundays. I had the privilege to preach at a couple of our partner ministries, and it was sweet to minister with them and just spend time with them and kind of thank them for the way that they've gotten behind Gospel Hope. But let me tell you something, it's good to be home. Um, It is always, this is my favorite place to worship on earth. Um, It's because these are my people and these are, this is the flock that God has called me to shepherd. And so it is a joy. And I say that with the deepest sincerity to be with you this morning. Now, I'm going to preach a weird message today, okay? Just just get ready. I am going to preach an entire message on singing today. So how many of you have ever heard a message on singing today? Ever before? Never? Okay, we got like two or three. All right, very good. So the title of the message, if you're taking notes, is simply, you better sing, okay? So, uh, and you can put whatever stank on that you want. So... You better sang if you want to say it that way. So we're going to be here in Exodus, and this is our very final sermon in the series in Exodus. I hope you've been encouraged as I have and seen the great deliverance that the Lord has provided for his people. So let's pause just a moment before we start and ask the Lord to help us one more time in this series as we look at Exodus chapter 15. Father, we need you. And we need your spirit right now. So I pray that you would draw near to us, that you would help us to see the face of Christ, that we would be captured by the salvation that he provides. Lord, I pray that our souls would sing because of what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, we just pause and ask for your help. Speak to your people today. In the name of Jesus, amen. In weddings, at least in the United States, we have this tradition that you have a best man. How many of you have been a best man? Gentlemen, have you been? Very good, very good. And one of the roles of the best man in our weddings here in the States is like, you know, when the bride is getting ready to come down, the best man kind of, you know, stands up there beside the groom and waits for the bride to make the entrance. The the funny thing is, is that that tradition is actually obsolete. Uh, It was actually originated and best man was not so much just like your best friend or your brother. It was best swordsman actually is how the the, the, the idea originated. In other words, back when weddings were like these financial tra- transactions, sometimes the bride's family would get some cold feet. So you needed your best swordsman up there to be kind of the muscle and make sure that the deal went through. So they would right up there, they'd have their weapon right at their side and you just didn't ask somebody. You, you needed to ask somebody who was handy with a blade to be your best man. But we still practice the tradition, right? We still do it. And many of us in this room uh, have been best men. And I didn't get to wear a sword. And I'm a little disappointed in that in my best man debut. I think I want to kind of redo. Can I wear a sword while I go up there? I just think that would be cool. I bring this up because we're all familiar with the idea that sometimes traditions lose their justification. And they become obsolete and meaningless. And I want to raise the question... Is that what singing in church is? Do we just sing in church because we've kind of always sung in church? Is that really a point to it? I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's a little bit weird. 
I mean, what other gathering do like people come together and like sing together and get together and just like look up at words of the stage and have this band and we all sing together? It's unusual. So why do we do it? Is this just a tradition that is obsolete? Why do we sing? Well, while you won't find the phrase, thou shalt sing in church in the Bible, what you will find is an emphasis on God's people singing together regularly. So let me give you a couple of reasons right up front here why I think we should sing in church. First thing is this. The Bible frequently invites believers to worship God through song. Psalm 98 verses 1 through 7. Sing a new song to the Lord for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant. Shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord with lyre and lyre and melodious song with trumpets and the blast of the ransom. Shout victoriously in the presence of the Lord our King. Or go to the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3 verse number 16. Let the word of Christ dwell among you. And then notice what it says here. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In other words, the characteristic of the people of God who are filled with the Spirit is that sometimes they sing. They sing and they sing in all kinds of different ways. But not only does the Bible call God's people to worship Him through song, but second, an entire book of the Bible the longest one, in fact, in the entire Bible is a songbook. Maybe you didn't know this, but the book of Psalms was essentially the hymnal of ancient Israel. One author puts it this way. For centuries, faithful Israelites read, sung, and memorized the entire Psalter. That's just another name for Psalms. Jesus likely knew all 150 Psalms by heart. For generations stretching back thousands of years, the Psalms have been the hymn book of God's people. So not only does the Bible say sing and worship to God, God's people, not only is in the Bible itself an entire songbook, but thirdly, there are sections in the Old Testament which in great detail describe the role and organizations of those who are to lead God's people in corporate singing, particularly in temple worship. First Chronicles verses 15, chapter 15 uh, verses 16 and following. Then David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers and to have them raise their voices with joy accompanied by musical instruments, harps and lyres and cymbals. The singers were to sound the bronze cymbals and then Zechariah and all of them. Bah, 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 bah. Skip down to verse 22. And Shaniah, the leader of the Levites in music, was to direct the music because he was skillful. What does it say? It, it says, at least in part, that God cares about music, and he actually cares about good music. 
He wants the people to actually sing skillfully to the Lord. And then finally, as if all this were not enough, we should sing. We should sing when we gather together as God's people because the climax of human history is the redeemed people of God united in song to the praise of Jesus. Revelation chapter 15, verse number three. Then they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord. Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, kings of all the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because of your righteous acts have been revealed. It seems that the people of God have long and will long worship the Lord through song. It's just Part of what it means to be part of the people of God, that you express your thanks and praise and gratitude towards God in singing. So for these and many other reasons, it is no surprise that when we gather as Gospel Hope Church this morning, singing plays a key role in the life of our church, which leads me to my simple point this morning, we must worship the Lord through song. That's what you've been called to do. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have turned away from your sins and put your hope in God, then part of your duty, part of your obligation as a follower of Jesus is to worship the Lord through song. So you might say, okay, I get it. God's people are supposed to sing. But what does that look like? I mean, seriously, if I'm really honest, I've never really thought about how much how to sing I just kind of do it. I just kind of come into church and start singing. Fortunately, I think by looking at this passage, we learn a great deal about what it looks like to worship God through song. For as our text tells us, this, this whole passage in Exodus chapter 15 is actually a song. Look at chapter, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. So the whole story from Exodus Verse 1 on down, all the way down to verse 21, is a song that Moses composed. So what I think, if we look carefully at this, we can learn some very profound things about what it means to worship the Lord through song. So what I want to talk about this morning is the characteristics of God-exalting worship. What does it look like to worship the Lord in a God-exalting way as we sing. Okay, ready? I'm going to give you three things. Very simple. Number one, passionate. The first characteristic of God-exalting worship is that it is passionate. So, get the scene here. Moses and the Israelites have fled from Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery. And here comes Pharaoh bearing down on him with his chariots and his army preparing to wipe them out. God tells Moses, put your staff across the Red Sea. He parts it and across the Israelites go on dry ground. When Pharaoh and his chariots get there, they come charging down in the Red Sea. The wheels of their chariots get stuck and God sends the Red Sea, come crashing down on them, delivering his people in a miraculous way. And so what do they do? They sing. 
Moses composes a song and apparently it becomes a chart topper because in very short succession, the whole nation is singing this song. Exodus chapter 15, verse one. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. It is as if Moses is so overcome by what the Lord has done that he cannot help but sing about it. I mean, he's so overwhelmed at the mercy and grace and power of the Lord that the only thing that he can think to do is sing. Victor Hugo said it this way, music expresses that which cannot be said and on which it is impossible to be silent. Just picture the scene for a moment. The entire congregation of the people freed from slavery lift their voices in praise to, to God. I mean, this would have been a highly charged emotionally experience. And you can see it in the flights of rhetoric that Moses makes as he writes the song. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. I mean, he's like machine gun rattling off the goodness and the greatness of God. Verse number 11, it says this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? What is more, when the women get involved, a virtual party breaks out. Exodus chapter 15, verse number 20. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women came out following her with their tambourines and dancing. The point is this. The nation of Israel worshiped God through passionate, whole-personed song. I mentioned this because sometimes we have this notion that when we get together to worship the Lord, we should be detached or unaffected when we approach him. Or worse yet, we think the Lord is bothered by our feelings. But I do not think this could be further from the truth. In fact, I think part of the reason that God gave us music is so that we can more fully express our emotions to him. I think that is why we sing and don't chant or recite. I think God gave us this medium of music so that we could actually emote when we worship him. L let me give you an example of that. I have some clips here, and I'm going to play them for you, and you're going to tell me how you feel when you hear this music. So roll that beautiful clip. Okay. How do you feel? Strange. Somebody said, yeah. <laughs> Suspenseful. Angry. Okay, good. Let's play another one. All right. How do you feel on that one? Okay. Yeah. A little nervous, huh? Yeah. 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 What's that? Somebody else said something? Run? Okay, that's good. All right, good. All right, let's play another one. All right, what do you think on that one? Happy, yeah, you want to dance? Good. All right, one more. Okay, that one? 
That's, that's sad. That's sad. We should have reversed those because I, now I feel like my next point is this. Yeah. Um, there's no words there, right? And yet in that music, what is communicated? There's feeling communicated in them. You see, music is the language of emotions and God gave us this gift because he created us as emotional beings. And what is more, the Lord, he's not detached. He's not aloof. He's not bothered by the fact that you are emotional or that you have feelings. The Lord actually invites you to pour out your heart to him. I mean, we can read that all over in the scripture. Psalm 81, verse 1. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout in triumph to the God of Jacob. The Lord wants our joy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. The Lord wants our anxiety as well. Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The Lord desires that we bring our burdens and heaviness to him. And finally, Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God wants you, the emotional feeling being that he created, to come before him with your whole self. You're not to be attached. You're not to be aloof. You're not to be removed from worshiping him. But God gave us singing so that we could pour out even our emotions to him. He desires that we express them to him. And this is a big part of why we sing. Think about the occasions where people sing in public today. There's not really that many. But just think about the ones where it happens. Like a, a soccer game. At the end of a concert where everybody gets out their lighters and sways back and forth. In the car with your people. You know, when your jam comes on. You know what I'm talking about, right? What do all of those have in common? In those moments, you are experiencing all the feels. And so therefore, what happens you sing, your team is winning, your band is playing, your favorite song is you, and it hits you so hard that you got to sing. It only makes sense then that when we, the people of God, gather, we simply don't come together and say, repeat these words after me, or chant along with the band, or read these words quietly to yourself. No, there is something about the greatness of God, about our Lord, about our master, about our savior that demands that we sing with feeling. The characteristic, the characteristic of God-exalting worship is that it must be passionate. That doesn't mean all of our passion looks exactly the same, by the way. That doesn't mean that you have to be as expressive as the person next to you. But what it does mean is that if something is not going on in your heart at all, there's something wrong with you. You're not gripped by the majesty of what we're singing about. Moses, his life has just been rescued. And the first thing and the only thing that he can think of to do is give me my pen and let me get writing and let me teach these people. And then Miriam hears it. And she's like, ladies, go get the tambourines because we got to dance. 
Singing to the Lord our God ought to be a passionate experience. The Lord is an emotional being. He created you as emotional beings, so we don't need to check that at the door when we come to church. Number two. I'm sorry. I skipped something that I need to say. Um, Sometimes praise is only adequately expressed in song. Has your heart ever been so full that just saying something isn't enough? I think that's why God gave a song. That it gives us that extra oomph to what we're trying to say to God. That it allows us to, with our heart, pour it out before him and say, Lord, you are great and good and mighty and we love you. Number two. Singing should not only be passionate, but singing should be theological. Some might hear what I just said and think, well, isn't that dangerous? Isn't it possible that our feelings run wild? Absolutely. Listen, emotions are a lot more like gauges on your dashboard than they are like your GPS. Okay? Listen, are gauges on your dashboard important? Yes or no? Do you need to pay attention to them? But if your fuel gauge is pointing this way, does that mean turn right? No. Gauges tell you something's going on under the hood, but they don't tell you which way to go. That's the job of the GPS. Our GPS is this right here, the word of God. The Bible tells us which way we should go, but our feelings tell us what's going on. And that's important to pay attention to. If your gauges are bouncing all over the place, guess what? You got a problem and something needs to be checked out. But don't just follow your gauge. You'll end up in the ditch. Follow this. Let this guide you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you need to pay attention to those gauges while you are following the GPS of God's word. Feelings play a critical role in your life, but they are not a reliable guide for your behavior. You know, I'm going to shoot Disney down right now. You know, always follow your heart. That may make a great end of a movie, but it's terrible advice for living. Right? Follow the word of God, believer. That is our guide. That is what directs us. Our feelings are important. They're critical. We're emotional beings. God is an emotional being. And yet, and yet, the way that we get down the road of life is by following what God has said to us in his word and making sure periodically we're checking our gauges to make sure nothing's going wrong under the hood. That's why it's important to notice what else this passage points out about our worship. It's not just this feeling experience, emotional experience with no boundaries at all. Namely, this passage that Moses writes, the song that he composes is deeply theological. As you read through Moses' song, virtually the whole thing is focused on the character and the works of God. This will take a moment, but I'd like us to notice all the references to God in this song that Moses composed. Look at verse 1. Follow along up on the screen. And, and you say all the times it refers to God. I'll give you a hint. I'll pause right when it refers to God so you don't have to think that hard. I know. I will sing to the... Okay, we've got to do better than that. Is it not up there? Okay, we're like the third line down. All right, ready? I will sing to the... Four has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's CSB. He may or may not be able to do that. Okay, I will, I will read it for you. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of... Your majesty, you overthrow your, your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide this boar. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder. You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast love and the people with whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Holy smokes, that's a lot of God in that song. It's as if Moses can't get a whole sentence out without making a reference to who God is or what he has done. I think the point is simply this. God-exalting worship is God-saturated worship. And it, it seems then that the way that we truly have a meaningful worship experience is not by simply having a great band and a worship leader with skinny jeans. No offense, Jalen. It's not that there's anything wrong with a great band or skinny jeans, depending on who wears them, by the way. <laughs> Let me just park on that for a minute. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right. But God-exalting worship is far more, is it not? It is more than just having a, a beat you can get down to. It's more than getting your groove on. Real worship is always rooted in truth. The Apostle John said it this way, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is, we must, not worship, the, we must worship the Lord as he has revealed himself in the Bible. We can't worship some make-believe version of God that we have created ourselves. You can't go all Depeche Mode, right? This is for you oldies. Your own personal Jesus. You can't do it. You have to say the God of the Bible is who he says he is. And this is the God that I must worship. Because real worship is truth worship. It is worship of the God as he has revealed himself in his word. And here's the thing. Moses' song does not simply highlight the warm and fuzzy attributes of Lord. The reality is that this song is largely about the fierce judgment of God. Did you notice that? Like this is not your, your normal contemporary worship song. This is Moses singing about the judgment of God on his enemies. The implication is this. We need to fight to see who God really is. We must fight to see God in his full-orbed beauty 
in the way that we worship him. You know, we're all prone to what I would call spiritual amnesia. That is, we have all have a tendency to forget the character and the works of God. This was certainly too true for the Israelites. Immediately after God had decimated Egypt and delivered Israel through the ten plagues, I mean right after, they're standing on the banks of the Red Sea and they say this, Exodus chapter 14, verse number 11, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? I mean, they just needed a good backhand right there, right? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. God was about to do something incredible. And yet, here stood his complaining, doubting, forgetting people. But before you pick up stones, can't you identify? Have there been times in your life where God has done great and mighty things? Have there been times in your life, despite the track record of God's faithfulness to you, you, like the Israelites, have, forget, have essentially developed amnesia? You forgot who he was. You forgot what he does. You forgot of his love and his character and his might. And this is one of the reasons why corporate worship is so important for you. In a sense, every Sunday, corporate worship ought to be a weekly reminder of who God is. This at, at Gospel Hope is the chief criteria in choosing the songs. It's not. When we think about songs to choose, the first question is not, does it jam? That's on down the list. But the first question is really this, does it tell the truth about God? Because if you just want songs that jam, just go turn on the radio. We need more than that. I need more than that. I need to be reminded of the character and the works of God because I am so prone to forget. Every week we come in here, it's in a sense treatment for your amnesia. Because we're going to stand together and we're going to try to remind one another of who God is and what he has done. Because the reality is you, like me, are very prone to forget. And I need you to sing to me and you need me to sing to you. We need to sing together to remind ourselves of God. For us, when we get up here and sing, it's essentially we're just saying to one another, remember Remember, remember. One of my favorite movies growing up was, was Hook. Um, it was a story about Peter Pan growing up. And when Peter Pan grew up, he forgot that he was Peter Pan. And, and he had to go back to Neverland to remember that he was indeed the Pan. And it came back to him because people tried to remind him. In a sense, that's what church is for all of us. We kind of forget who we are. We forget who our God is. We forget what he has done. And we need to come back to Neverland, as it were. We're not renaming the church, all right? 
We need to come back in here and remind each other of the things that we've forgotten. We need to remember that God is great and that God is good and that he rescues sinners and that he sent his son to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died and be raised again because Monday morning when you punch in, it's going to be hard to keep that on your mind. This is very much what we're attempting to do this morning. We are simply trying to bring one another back to reality. And let me mention a brief word of pastoral care. If you can identify this, and you, like me, are prone to forget the character of God, make this gathering, this one right here, 11 a.m. Sunday mornings, a priority on your calendar and in your life. Not in some sort of legalistic way or check your spiritual box way, but because you know that you need to be here because you're prone to forget. Coming to God in corporate worship is not like a declaration of your discipline. Oh Lord, look how faithful I am to you. I am here every Sunday, come hell or high water. I show up when the doors are open. Look God, aren't you impressed with me? No, it is far more a declaration of your dependence. Lord, here I am again. I come crawling in here because I need to be reminded of who you are. Help me. Meet with me. Help me. I don't come to church because I have to. I come to church because I need to. I need the word preached to me so that I remember who God is. And I need to sing. I need to sing with the people of God to be reminded of who God is and what he has done. Singing is a deeply theological experience. It should be packed, jammed, full of truth so that we remember who God is. Finally, singing is hopeful. There's another important lesson that we learn from Moses' song, namely that singing can be expression of our hope. (laughs) Over the years in my ministry, I have heard several people express hesitance to fully engage in corporate worship because they felt their heart was not in a great place. The sentiment goes something like this. I want to sing, and I want what we're saying to be true. But if I'm honest, I don't really feel like they're true right now. And so I don't want to be a hypocrite. You ever been there? You come into church and you know you're not where you ought to be or want to be. And so you kind of distance yourself from what's going on because you don't want to be duplicitous or two-faced in any way. Have you ever basically crawled in here on a Sunday morning and felt dull, numb, or even distant to the things of God? If that's you, I think this passage has a good word for you. Look at verse 14. When the people hear, they will shudder. This is Moses' song, remember? They will shudder, and anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling with the, will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by. Lord, until the people whom you purchase pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy, but there is something super profound in here. Did you notice something about this section? Here it is. None of these things have happened yet that Moses is writing about. They're all future. None of them have happened. Moses isn't looking back at what God has done and saying, God, look what you did. He's looking forward to what God is going to do and expressing faith that God is going to do great things in his future. That is, in this song, Moses is not just expressing what is, but he is expressing, it's an expression of hope of what will be. Look, singing is both confessional and aspirational. When we sing, we're saying, Lord, this is true. And we're also saying, Lord, I hope this to be true in the future. Now, this, this is going to rock your world if you get this. This is going to change the way you think about corporate worship. It is not hypocritical. If you sing, if you come in here a mess this morning, and you sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not because you feel like it's true, but because you want it to be true. Amen. If you come in here and you say, Lord, I am a disaster. I can't hardly even lift my hand. I can't hardly get my eyes up. But Lord, I'm going to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, make that true. Make that true. Make that true. Make that true. Because right now my hope is built on 10,000 other things. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, I know that, but I don't feel it. So I'm singing right now as an aspiration for you to use this moment of song to change my heart. Hypocrisy is when you're trying to convince other people that you are something that you are not. When you sing because you desire God to change your heart, this is honesty, not hypocrisy. As you read through the Psalms, the Old Testament songbook, as we talked about, there are many times when David is riddled with unbelief. I mean, there are moments in the psalm when David is, he is not impressive, okay? He is not impressive. And yet he pours them out to God and the Israelites sang those things. Just look at, look at a couple of examples. Psalm 42 verse 5. Why my soul are you so dejected? This is a song. Why are you in such turmoil? Then he turns to himself and says, put your hope in God. Don't make me come back there. For I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 51, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. He doesn't feel clean right now. 
Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. What is he saying? I'm not where I should be, so what am I doing? I'm worshiping God so I can get where I should be. Worship can be both the cause and the effect of seeing God. It's both. Sometimes we think, well, I see God, so I will worship him. Sometimes you need to worship him because you don't see God. And you need God through that worship to begin to see him. So is your heart heavy or cold? Perhaps the best thing you can do is raise your hand towards heaven. Not because you're overflowing with joy, but as an expression of your need for God to meet you. Let our lifted voices and lifted hands be an expression of our hope in God. God, I'm not singing this because I'm impressed or I'm gripped. I'm singing this because I want to be gripped. Lord, help me want to want you. And one of the means that God does us in our hearts is to sing. Let's be the best singing church in the world. Not like the best voices, but just people who see singing as what it's meant to be. It is a way for us to come before the Lord with passion and bring our feelings and our hearts to the Lord. It's a way for us to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done. And it's a way for us in our brokenness to say, God, I need you right now, so I'm going to sing. It's like a prayer. Lord, meet with me as we sing to you. But as wonderful as Moses' song is, It's only a dim shadow of what you and I are invited to sing. You see, Moses and Israel sang of God's song of deliverance at the Red Sea. But brothers and sisters, God had a better deliverance in mind. He wasn't going to just rescue us from Pharaoh or take us into a physical promised land. He was coming to save us from enemies far worse than any king of Egypt. From sin and death and the devil itself, God sent his son into the world to rescue us. Why? So that we could sing. We could sing about his greatness and his love and mercy of all the people in the world that should sing. It is the church. Because friends, we have the most to sing about. And we don't have a sports team to root for. We'd have a country to swear our allegiance to. Our first and foremost allegiance, our deepest and greatest joy is the deliverance bought for us on the precious blood of Christ. Jesus came and he rescued us and we have so much to sing about. Just listen to some of the songs that have been penned. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. 
I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me his own beautiful Savior. I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. You could have had heaven without us. But Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great. Your sin was great. Your love was greater. What can separate us now? There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Of all the people on earth, the church has the most to sing about. Turn on the radio, I dare you. I dare you. Go in your car after church and turn on the radio. Choose the genre of your choice. You'll hear talented musicians, yes. You'll hear great lyricists, yes. What you may or may not hear may be redemptive or not. I don't know about that. But what you will be listening to is an attempt to climb the mountains of glory. They'll sing about love and identity and independence and power. But Bruno Mars can only take you to the foothills. Adele, maybe she goes a little higher, I don't know. But church, we can go to the Himalayas right now because we have truth. The most glorious message in all the world to sing about it. So back to the title of the message, you better sing. Church of God, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead to grip us with such wonder so that when we gather together, we sing to him. And it is a transcendent experience. Something that the world tries to mimic and mock, but they can't ever fully get there. Let me shut us down with two things. First of all, two simple ways to apply this. Will you invite someone into this song? Right, if we have the greatest message in the world to sing about, wouldn't it be cruel and unusual of us not to invite others to join us in that song? Say, listen, you're looking for cheap thrills. I got the real deal. You need to come to Jesus and see where joy and life and truth really is. And as a church, we're gonna make a concerted effort to do that together over the next several weeks. Right in front of you in your pew, if you look right there, there's a sheet of paper. I'm gonna pause just one moment. It says four for four. So over the next four weeks, I wanna invite you to pray for four people that you would like to invite into this song. Okay, Easter Sunday is coming up right around the corner. And I would like you to write down four people that you would like to invite to that service because you know what they're gonna hear? They're gonna hear the greatest news in the world. They're gonna hear the greatest message, not the greatest preacher. I mean, as Spurgeon once said, people can preach the gospel better than me, but they can't preach a better gospel. And they're gonna hear that message on Easter. Would you begin to pray for people that you want their hearts to sing about this great good news? And then have the courage to say, 
why don't you come to me with East to Easter at my church and hear about the risen Lord? That's one point. We're also gonna have an opportunity for all of us to gather together. On April 6th, this is Saturday, we're gonna go around our neighborhood right here. We have, we, we've been planted in this particular neighborhood, so we have a responsibility to our neighbors right here. And we're just gonna invite people out to church by hanging these on their door, that's it. We want a large crew to come out and help us do that. You'll be hearing more about that. In fact, there'll be a sign up for that so that we can get a count and know how well we need to. So there's a sign up right now. You can stop by the Connect Center, April 6th. We're gonna blitz these, okay? So pray and then commit to come and help us to invite others in our neighborhood into this song. And then finally, as the worship team all comes here, there's only one way to really conclude this message, right? Stand up and let's sing. Let's sing about the greatness of our Savior and his glory and his goodness and the salvation that he has provided for us. Let's sing.